in verse 31 this morning. Dude, it's so, I'm so blessed to be up here. When I saw who was teaching, um, I thought, man, what am I even doing here? Trevor O'Keefe, um, Ben Corson, um, Nate Gallagher. Although they brought the big guns in all the way from Florida. Dude, why am I even here? So hope you guys have been having a good time. And um, this morning we're going to be talking about God being for us. And this is something that's been on my heart and uh, it's been a blessing to me. Hopefully it's a blessing to you. So whether or not it is, it's up to you. Here we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your word together. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us now through your word. We thank you that, God, you love to, to be with us. You desire to, to, ha- to be around us, God, which is such a, um, an amazing thing to know that the creator of the universe would, would desire to be with us. And um, So, Lord, we just pray right now that your presence would fall in this place. God, I pray that you'd remove any distractions from the room, that we'd be able to just supernaturally be awake right now, that we might hear from you and all that you would desire to say to us this morning. So, Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know that Paul, if you'll notice in these verses, that Paul uses the words us, we, our, as he talks about the wonderful blessings that we have received as believers. And often we can, um, we know, I'm I mean, grown up in the church, you know what Jesus has done for you, and, and we kind of understand that we have blessings in the Lord, but we can live as kind of spiritually homeless in the sense that um, we don't really take advantage of all that we have, and we can live as spiritual paupers, and, and what Paul is seeking to do in Romans is, is describe to us the way in which God has saved us. It is... Paul's description and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of how God has chosen to save humanity. And and Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the way that God has chosen to save us. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God into salvation. The way that God has chosen to save me is, is a wonderful an amazing story. It's a story of grace. It's a story of, of mercy. And he begins to describe in the book of Romans what God has done. But he begins to ask a series of questions. And his first question is, what shall we say to these things? What things are we talking about? Well, he's pointing us back to the context. Everything that he has told us for the last eight chapters um, is what he's talking about. After all of these things that we have discussed, and Paul has taken us, or he's taken us through some wonderful truths of what God has done for us and the way that God has provided salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, all that has been made available to us, and he's taken us from guilt to glory. In the first three chapters, he established the guilt of every person, whether you're a heathen, man, whether you're partying on the street, whether you are just as far away from God as possible, whether you say that you know God and you live a hypocritical life, but you you don't live what you know to be true, or whether you're a Hebrew and you've been raised and you are God's chosen people, whether that's who you are, he says every single person 
in this world has fallen short and is continually falling short of the mark that God has set for us. And Paul kind of takes us to the edge. He takes us to this place of understanding that we're sinners because you cannot understand the good news of the gospel unless we really fully understand the bad news. That unless we are perfect, unless we have a righteousness that comes from somewhere else, heaven is, is unreachable for us in and of ourselves. And so Paul says, listen, we're, he's going to take you to the very edge of, of understanding that without Christ, we're doomed. And he kind of, not to dangle us over there and kind of like deal with it, feel the flames of hell. But he kind of will, will bring us to that point and understand, listen, it's serious. And in chapter 4, he turns a corner and he says, being therefore justified. And justified is, is, is a word that means, if you want to remember it, it doesn't mean just as if I had never sinned. It's kind of a way to remember it. But it, it means that there is no record. How many of you, hopefully you don't have a criminal record yet. You are young. Give it some time. You, you don't want to get, you don't want to, it's like a report card. I want to get as much on there as I can. It's a college transcript. It's not, you don't want anything on your record. So maybe you know someone who has a record. What that word justified means, it means simply this. There is no record. Means that it has never happened. That someone would look at your record and you have marks of sin. And Jesus says you've been justified because of your faith in Christ. And he opens up your record and it's clean. There's no record of our sin. And in chapter 4 he says it's been given to us freely which means without cause. It means without a cause. That you have been saved freely, been justified freely, not because you begged and pleaded for it. Not because your eyes got big and you began to tear up and God had compassion and then moved upon your understanding of, his, of a need for a Savior. But, but while we were dead in sin and trespasses, that's when God moved. When we were in rebellion to him, when we hated him, when we, when we ran from him, justification came freely, without a cause. He says in, in chapter 5, that by this salvation, we now have peace with God. Peace with God. No longer at war or at conflict with him. And we also have access to him at any time. We have access to God at any time. Just like we had that video of the temple. Listen, the Jews and the people of those days did not have access to God at any time. The priests could go into the temple once a year to make sacrifice on Yom Kippur. The presence of God was something that not everyone got to experience. It was something that was unique to, to the priest. It was something that was unique to those in ministry. But it wasn't something that like we get to experience here. When we worship him and the presence of God descends in this place. And you can feel it and you can touch it and you know he's here. That is unique to the New Testament people. You can clap. You can be excited. That has happened because of Jesus. That is a, a byproduct of your faith in Christ. You have access to God. You have his ear. You can speak to him anytime you want. Doesn't matter if you're in a temple, if you're in a chapel, if you're in a other place. <laughs> I was going to say bathroom, but I don't know why. Like, 
that's what came to mind. I don't know why that came to mind. doesn't matter where you are. You have access to the, the presence of God, the Spirit. Then we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. It's an amazing thing. We have access to him. In chapter 6, he talks about, how, since we've experienced this wonderful grace of God, does that mean we just keep on living like we've always lived? Paul says, that's crazy talk. He says, what? No, absolutely. That's just ridiculous to even think that. If, if we've been freed from the penalty of sin, which is death, I've been freed from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin in my life. That when I used to live according to my flesh, that when sin said jump, I said, how high? How, what do you want me to do? I was its slave. I did whatever it told me to do. When I've been given this new life in Christ, a transformed life, when that happened, sin no longer had, had any power over me. I'm no longer a slave to it, which means I don't have to do what it tells me to do. How many of you, when I was a kid, I don't, don't judge. Punk rock thing was like super in. I was born in the 80s. The early 90s was like, I don't know why, this like rush of punk came back into Costa Mesa where I was growing up. And, and I had like this spike belt. I had the Liberty Spikes. At one point I had a green mohawk. All my shirts had no sleeves. Um, I was, believe it or not, sewn into my pants because I wanted them as tight as I could possibly get them. Creeper, you know, you're looking at me, you're like, ooh, <laughs> tight pants. <laughs> you know, like a, anyway, um, like an overhang. Um, but I was super into it. And I remember like, it was this whole thing of like, I don't want to be like anyone else, man. I'm going to individuate myself. How many of you have ever set out to individuate yourself and realize that you're just like everybody else? You're like, I'm getting tattoos because that's what makes me an individual. Everyone has tattoos. <laughs> you know? I looked at my friend and we had the same Jansport backpack, which was really cool. And you would take whiteout. Do you guys know what whiteout is? You would take whiteout and you would draw on the straps. Do you guys still do that? Because if you do... Let's talk. You're cool. You would draw on, on the straps, and on mine was like this fat anarchy sign and like checkers and officer negative patch. And I looked at my friend's backpack, and we're like, we had the same exact things on our backpack. We are not individuals. I'm actually doing exactly what you're doing. So many times we have this misunderstanding of what freedom is. Freedom is not anarchy, anti-establishment, anti-police. True freedom is found in Christ. The devil loves to twist this idea of freedom, whether you have a, this picture of yourself riding on a Harley with a grizzly bear on your back with an American flag, and you're like, that's freedom. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's freedom. The devil says, listen, live according to your flesh. That's freedom. Really, you've become a corporate stooge enslaved to your flesh and the devil. You do exactly what he wants you to do. You're not an individual. You're corporate. You've been marketed by the devil. So if you want to be anti-establishment, you want to be real punk rock, it's still, it's still there. I was listening to hardcore music like on my way home yesterday. Just like, and it just, it just lifts the soul. Anyway. 
freedom from the penalty of sin, but listen, no longer under the power of sin in my life. I've been given the power to live a different kind of life. I don't know about you, but when I came to Jesus, I was sick of the life I was living. I didn't come to Jesus and be like, sweet, I can live the same way. I was sick of it. And that's why I came to Jesus, because I didn't want to do what I've been doing. And the only way that I have the power to do that is through this new life in the spirit of God that has come upon me. And that's what's happened to us, man. We've been given the power to live a different kind of life. And in chapter 8, Paul, before he gets to chapter 8, says, I'm no longer obligated to keep the law. I have this wonderful love relationship with the Lord. And he says that for a minute, he says, listen, my willpower stinks. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I try to do, I know I should do them, I don't do them. I, and he's almost gonna, about to rip his shirt, Hulk Hogan, you know who that is? He's about to just tear his tank top in just ugh, frustration. The things that I know I should do, I don't do them. And he's saying, he gets to the end of chapter 7 and he says there, O wretched man that I am, who can save me? This is the Apostle Paul being very transparent. Who can save me? I'm a sinner. I'm a wretch. And he's about to tear his clothes. But then he remembers chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's almost like he goes, hold on. I've been listening to a different voice. That's not what Jesus says. That's the voice of the devil that's condemning me. I've been freed in Christ. Jesus does not condemn me. And he's the only one who can do it. And because he does it, no one else can. No one else can. In chapter 8, he, he describes for us that I'm a son. I'm a daughter of God brought into his family by the spirit of adoption. My wife and I just had a baby about five weeks ago. She had a baby. Um, I was there. It was super cool. Little Silas James. And, um, you know, what, we, what she birthed is what we get, right? There's no, like, exchange program. You know, it's like, eh, do you have a different one that we could take home? Okay. The cool thing about adoption is that you get to choose. You pick. I have an adoptive brother. We chose to, to bring him into our family. And Paul is saying here, the wonderful thing and the things that I'm talking about, this wonderful way that God has chosen to save us, that while I was dead in sin and trespasses, he chose me. He wanted to adopt me, not to be a slave in his home, but to be a son or a daughter, to have the privileges that a son and a daughter have, which is access to him, and, and to, to run into the presence of the Father at any time, any place. He says, I've been chosen by the spirit of adoption, he talks about suffering for a minute, and we're going to speed up because I don't want to keep you here forever. The difficulty that we will face, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 towards the end, he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And he says here, I don't want you to get a false idea that being a son or a daughter of God will be removed of all difficulty in your life. He says, there's going to be suffering that comes, but know this, that that's suffering in comparison, in comparison to the glory that we will receive in Christ. It's not worthy to be on the same page or in the same book or in the same area, the same state, the same world. The glory that we will receive and the glory that we will see, 
Someday we'll be face to face with our glorified Savior. We'll get to look into his eyes, those same eyes that have seen you from the beginning of time, that knew you in your mother's womb, the eyes that looked down from the cross, swollen and bloody and had compassion upon the crowd and cried out, Father, forgive them. Those are the eyes we get to look into. That's the glory that we'll experience. And so he says the suffering that will happen in this world, because there will be difficulty, there will be suffering, but someday this world will pass, will be in his presence, his glory, and is nothing compared to this life. There's nothing compared to this. And because we are in Christ, there is no condemnation, there is no obligation, there is no frustration. And today we're going to see that there is no separation from God's love. Because God is for us. Let's get to the verse that we're actually going to talk about. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul includes himself. What are we going to say? All the things that we just talked about. What do we even do with this wonderful salvation that we've been given? What what should be our response? And he says to us here, if God be for us, and that word for us is the word hooper in the, in the Greek. It means exceedingly, abundantly above, in behalf of, beyond. And this is my favorite. It means very chiefest. That, that's what it means. I don't even know what chiefest is, but that's an exciting word. It means that God is ever exceedingly, abundantly for you. That God is not out to condemn you. He's not out to destroy you. That God is ever exceedingly, abundantly, chiefedly. I didn't even use that right. made it up. He is, is for you to the point of which we don't even understand. He says to us that we don't, we don't just... <clears throat> what do we do with these things? When we begin to think that that's, that's great. Listen, we can look at all this stuff and go, that's great. That is just fantastic. Oh, man. But listen, unless you take it and apply it to yourself, you miss out. Because you can apply it to other people and be like, that's great for other people. But you don't know me in the deepest, darkest, secret sin of my life. That doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. That applies to other people. But you don't know what I'm going through. Listen, God is for you today. If you're a child of God, he is for you. We still have, and the problem, I believe, is we still have a slave market mentality. We have a slave market mentality that we have got to earn God's favor. That as I'm a good servant by my works and and I make God pleased with me, I become more valuable to him and therefore God is going to keep me. He's never going to let me go. That's what makes God for me and does nice things for me. And that's what blesses me is because I I live for God. Therefore God will, will come alongside of me and bless my life. You remember in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, he, he tells his dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have my money right now. And so the dad says, well, why don't you just take it? Take it and go. I'm not holding you back. You do what you want to do. So he takes all of his money, his inheritance. He goes, you know the story. He lives prodigally. He does exactly what he wants to do. He gets friends. He buys friends. He buys ladies. And all of a sudden, money runs out and everybody leaves him. There he finds himself working on a farm, sleeping with pigs, wanting to eat what they eat because he's starving. And he comes to his senses and goes, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? 
I, my, the servants in my dad's house eat better than this. He says, I'll go home. And as he's deciding to go home, he works out this little speech in his mind. He says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. What is he saying here? He's saying, I'm not worthy to be his son. The way that I've lived, the things that I've done, I'm not worthy to be his son anymore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer my services to him and maybe I can work my way back into his home. And then things will kind of smooth over with me and my dad. That's his little speech. It says, and he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interjects here and he says, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, hallelujah, and hear and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. He can't even get through half of his speech before the dad says, what are you talking about? The only thing you had to do is turn home. You've never stopped being my son. You've just been living outside of it. All you had to do was turn home. And when you do, you receive all of the blessing again of being a son. Some of you today are living in such a way where you are not experiencing all that is available to you in the house of God because you're seeking to live outside of it. You're running from it. But listen, all you have to do this morning is turn towards home and come back. You don't have to work your way in. You don't have to make yourself better. You have to realize that God is for you. As a good father who loves you dearly, you turn home, you're welcomed in. We feel like this prodigal son sometimes that maybe I can work my, in my father's house to be his servant, eventually work my way back into his good graces. And all the son had to do was turn home. And Paul here isn't asking the question. He's not saying, well, I guess perhaps, perhaps if God is for us, maybe if that's, if that's true, then who could be against us? Paul's not asking a question. That word can also be translated since. Since God is for us, who could possibly be against us? There isn't a question in Paul's mind or whether or not God is for him. He just spent the last eight chapters telling us that God is for us. And he's not thinking the hypothetical. It's not a question. He's saying here, since God is for us, since we're his kids, since he loves us, listen, he is for us. And if God is for us, then who could possibly stand against us? And I think this is something I need to grow in each new day is to realize when I wake up that God is for me. He's for me. He is for me in the sense that he is sanctifying me. He is for me in the sense that he is refining me. I am under construction, becoming more like the person of Jesus Christ each day by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Also, a byproduct of salvation. God begins to go to work in our heart and transform us from the inside out. And something I need to realize, listen, God's not out to get me today. He's out to bless me today. And he wants to, to, to draw me to himself and to make me more like Jesus today. In verse 31b, he says, who can be against us? Again, he's not asking a question of like, who possibly could? <laughs> it doesn't say that they won't be against us. 
Paul's not saying that there isn't opposition. There won't be opposition to your faith. There won't be opposition to you walking with Jesus. Listen, there may be a day where this, this right here will become illegal in our country. It, it very could well be that someday it is illegal to be a pastor, and here I go back to work at Home Depot or something. It may be someday that this is illegal to do. Paul's not saying that there is an opposition, and if he was saying there was an opposition, then what is he talking about? That wherever, whatever city he went to, there was opposition in that city. He got beat up. He got thrown in jail. Paul's not saying there isn't going to be opposition. He says there's opposition, but they don't have the power that our God has. They don't stand a chance against God. He's saying here, that there, it's not necessarily that there won't be opposition. He's saying that who can stand against Almighty God and be successful? It is not possible. They will be unsuccessful. It puts, and listen, it puts the enemies of God in the proper light that they are nothing in comparison to our God. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there they are, King Nebuchadnezzar, they refuse to bow down to the, the, the image and he says to them, maybe you didn't hear the music properly. We're going to play it again. And, and when we do, just, just bow down. Everything's cool. We'll just kind of, we'll just, I'll just look this way. And you kind of just do your thing. And he says to them, he says this. He says, if you choose not to, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And this is what he says in verse 15. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? He saw himself as a God himself. He says, who's going to deliver you from me? And this is the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is so cool. It's almost like they laugh, a little chuckle. <laughs> oh, Nebuchadnezzar, like Santa. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> this, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let, us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which we, you have set up. What they say is, Nebuchadnezzar, you are such a tiny little man. And it's so cute that you think that you have power. Because if God is for us, not even the ruler of the known world can stand against us. You may throw us in a fire furnace, but so what? God will deliver us. Who could possibly be successful against God? It puts the enemies of God in their proper place to know that he is bigger and badder than anything else in this world. He says this in verse 32. Stick with me. You guys fall asleep? Shake it out. Shake it out. Roll your shoulders. Shake it out. Come on. Come on. It's about to get much better, okay? I promise. Verse 32. <laughs> Stick with me. Verse 32. How do I know? You're saying here today, well, that's great. It says it in the Bible. How do I know that God's for me? Give me some kind of evidence in the present day. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also freely give us all things? How do I know that God is for me? Listen, the minerals that make up your body today are the same 17 minerals that make up topsoil. You're dirt. And so, and so am I. We're all dirt. Now, if you were to, to break it down and separate all the elements into their categories, all of the, you know, the zinc and all that stuff, I don't even know what we're made of, water. Anyway, if you separate all that stuff, guess how much you're worth? This is amazing. We're worth about $4.75. 
That's less than a $5 box at Taco Bell. $4.75. How do I know that God's for me, man? Listen, God did not purchase you with gold or silver. God owns all the gold. Did you know that? Every piece of gold in the world, it's his. It's all his. <clears throat> if he purchased us with gold, he can give all that he had and just make more. If heaven, and the thing is, is in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. It's God's asphalt. It's no big deal to him. God didn't buy us with gold. He didn't pay for us with diamonds and, the, and all these precious stones because the walls of the New Jerusalem are inlaid with diamonds, emeralds, and rubies. The stuff that we find valuable are God's building material. Diamonds, rubies, those precious stones. God's drywall, is made, that's what it is. God didn't purchase you with stuff that he could just make more of. He purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus. How do I know that God's valuable to me, for me today? How, valuable? Hold on. How do I know that God is for me today? He bought me, not with silver and gold, but he gave the best that he had. It was the blood of his only begotten son. Listen, my little son, he's, he's five. He was four, obviously. And uh, we have these, like, this planner outside of our house. And one day I was supposed to be watching him. My wife was doing a haircut in our garage because that's what we do. And she was doing a haircut in our garage. And I was tired. I fell asleep on the couch watching Frozen with my daughter. And um, don't judge me. And then um, he was outside. And I thought, yeah, he's fine. There's these rocks outside that he likes to jump on, rock to rock. Well, he was jumping on the rocks. And he biffed it and, like, took a header into a rock. And he chipped his tooth um, from top to bottom, like shaved it in half. And it's like dangling and he's like crying. And so we Googled what to do. You know, that's what you do as a parent. What do I do when my kid's teeth are falling out? This is how I Google. And, then, you know, you're like, oh, no, what do we do? And they sit, a lot of the blogs and mommy blogs and all of that, like naturalists, they're like, just rub some essential oils on it. And then what you want to do is just leave it alone. Just leave it alone, Right. It might reattach. And so I'm like, fine, we'll just leave it alone. Pretty soon it turned gray. It smelled like old walnuts. And it's like hanging out of his face. And this is like three weeks of just like, maybe it'll fix itself. <laughs> you know? I'm like, let's just glue it. You know, just glue it <laughs> until he gets older and then it'll just fall out. But it didn't happen. So we took him to the dentist. And they have to put him under anesthesia because little kids, they don't sit still. And so they have to put him out. And... Um, my wife's like, I can't watch that. Like, there's no way. And I'm like, baby, I'm a big, strong man. Like, watch me take care of this. <laughs> I used to bench press stuff. And like, so I'm like, I'll do this. So I take him to the dentist and it's like eight o'clock in the morning. It's like the, the anesthesiologist, the oral surgeon and the secretary. That's it. There's no one else in the dentist's office. <clears throat> and I take him back there and I'm just sitting with him, like talking with him or playing with some toys and um, the anesthesiologist is talking to him. He's got his hand on his back. And I'm like, that's weird. And he's, he's like, oh, buddy. And he's like, I'm going to give him a shot. I'm like, what? Boom. And he hits him in the arm with a needle and like injects him. And he's like, ah. It just like, goes limp in my arms. And I'm like, ah. It's my baby boy. And then the, the guy's like, he's going to get sleepier and sleepier. And I'm like, how much did you give him? Right? So then the, the guy, he says, okay, now give him to me. 
Exact words. Give them to me. Um, no. I don't think so. You just shoved a needle in his arm. I don't think so. And he said, I'm like, well, can I carry him back? And I, just, and he's, and I sit with him. And he's like, no, it's better that you don't. You got to go wait in the waiting room. And so I have to give him my kid, my son. I have to hand him over. And I thought, like, dude, I'm, I'm fine. I can handle this. I'm a big, strong man. <laughs> I, I hand him over. And, dude, no joke. I have not cried. My, you, high schools know, like, I cry twice a year, winter camp, and, like, baptism. But I, I cry, like... I don't like to cry, but all of a sudden, I just start crying, and I cannot control myself. And I, I just, like, sprint towards the waiting room, and, like, the little, little Asian lady at the front desk, she's, like, 4'11", and she's, like, oh, dad, and I'm violently weeping. And I, turn, I like, turn my back to her, and all she sees is... how big men cry it's just everything is engaged you just I'm weeping uncontrollably and I cannot stop and I she's like oh and I'm like listen just give me a minute just stop it I had to teach that night. It was a Friday morning and our college group meets on Friday night. I had to teach that night. I'm like, how am I going to teach? I'm just a mess. And I opened to Romans 8 chapter, Romans chapter 8, <laughs> verse 32, because that's the text I was teaching that night. And I read, he did not spare his own son. It was like I got a glimpse. Just, I mean, it's not like he was just having dental work done. <laughs> and I got a glimpse into the heart. What it must have been like. What, what would it have been like? Can you imagine God the Father delivering up his own son, not for dental work, but to have him beaten, scourged, spit upon, nailed to a cross. To have the sin of the entire world, past, present, future, laid upon him. To have demonic beings surrounding the cross and mocking him as he was there. Can you imagine the heart of the fathers that broke? Listen, God did not buy you. He did not redeem you with gold, diamonds, anything like that, he gave something much more valuable and precious, and that was the blood of his own son. If you're sitting here today and you're going, I don't know, man, I don't know if God's for me. Listen, Paul says the proof, the proof is in the cross. The proof is in the cross. doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. Today, you turn home, God's for you. The blood of Jesus can cover any sin. There is no sin. There's no one that is too far gone that God can't save. If you're here today, man, you're thinking, no, nah, I'm I'm, it's over for me. I've done too much. I'm ready to jump ship. Listen, God's not done with you. God's not done with you. He purchased us not with silver and gold, but with his own son. 
which means, he says here, will he not also give us all things freely? Freely give us all things. Because he gave his only son, it means for us that God will not withhold from us that which we have need of. What do you need today? Do you need direction in your life? Do you need wisdom? Do you need forgiveness? Some of you have desires in this room and things that you want to do or, or needs that you have in your family and you're thinking, man, I just don't know if God's going to deliver. I don't know if God's going to show up. Listen, God's for you. And he knows what you need. He knows exactly what you need. He'll give you what you need. So if you have a, a request today, when's the last time you prayed for that thing that's so weighing on your heart? Man, you're broken. You're sick. When's the last time you prayed for God to heal you? Prayed in faith or have you given up? Man, God wants to give you the things that you need. He will not withhold from you. And that is the temptation, the lie of the devil. He says to us, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. He's, he's just a big meanie. He doesn't want to bless you. He wants, he wants you to be one of those kids that goes to church every day and, and is at home with his mama, learn how to bake. That's what God wants you to be. Just no joy, no fun, no excitement, no nothing. And we have this idea of Christianity as like the most, it's the most boring thing that we could ever do. There's nothing more exciting and more unknown than giving your life to Jesus and following him. You have no idea where it's going to take you. No idea. Because God is, he will do beyond what we could ever think. My greatest dream in life, let me just share this with you this morning. My greatest dream was to be a truck driver. <laughs> That's what I dreamed for myself. Like, I hate people, and I don't want to talk to anyone, so let's get in a truck. I really like driving. That was like my career path. I'm so glad that I gave my life to Jesus, and he turned it around. The dreams that, I mean, now I'm like a truck driver. But the dreams that even, even great, maybe you have a dream that's greater than a truck driver, perhaps. <laughs> Don't aim too high, you know what I'm saying? But if you, you know, maybe it's bigger than that. The Bible tells us that he will do beyond what we could ever ask or think. So the temptation then is to get ahead of God. Because we believe that God's withholding from us. And he won't deliver. Listen, he didn't withhold his own son from you. God's going to deliver. He'll show up in your life. Maybe not the way that you thought, but he's going to show up. He begins to talk about this. How much time, Aaron, what do I go to? I don't want to, like, destroy you. Just not past 11? Oh, sick. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Verse 33, who can bring a charge? He asks another question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. He says to us, who's going to bring us to court and bring a charge against us? A lot of times our conscience, our own sin, the law, the devil can do those things. But a lot of times it's the devil himself. He'll bring us to court and he'll condemn us and say, listen, you, piece of, you little piece of trash. Look at what you did. Look what you did. I was a football coach for like six years, and my, my term of endearment for my middle linebacker was, you piece of trash, do what I tell you to do. And that kid is scarred for life. 
I didn't realize it until I saw him at a youth camp a couple years ago. I was like, hey, Austin, give me a hug. He's like, dude, you messed me up. <laughs> I was like, it was a joke. I didn't really mean you. You are valuable to God. Anyway, the devil tries to bring us to the court and said, listen, look at what all he has done. Look at what he's done. The Bible tells us that we have an adversary who's declared war on our soul, and it's a fight to the death, man, it's the devil. He's also called the accuser in Revelation chapter 12. It says, and the great dragon was hurled down, an ancient serpent called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now have come the salvation of the, and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them day and night before our God. The accuser's been thrown away at this point. We have an accuser who brings charges against us. And we already have an accuser of the brethren. We don't need to jump on that team. The things that God hates are gossip and backbiting. The reason being, he hates slander. The reason being is because it's a characteristic of the enemy himself. This is what he does. He's a slanderer. He slanders God to Eve. He says, God is insecure. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. He slanders Job to God. He says, of course, he worships you. You've given him everything. Just let me touch his life and watch him curse you to your face. He's a slanderer. In the desert temptation, remember after Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove. And Jesus is then led into the desert and the devil comes and he begins to bring on a series of temptations. Jesus responds to each one of them with scripture. He says, you're hungry, man. Turn these rocks into bread. God doesn't want you to starve. Give in to the flesh. And Jesus says to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what Jesus here, listen, it was just Jesus and the devil. The disciples weren't there. How do we have this recorded? It means that Jesus told them about this. And what he's indicating to his disciples is the only thing, listen, the only thing that we need to overcome the devil is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to stand on the word of God. That is all we need because he is a defeated foe. You're sitting here today and the devil's whispering little things in your ear, man. Camp's not going to make a difference. This is just in one. Listen, you tell him to shut his mouth because Jesus is king. You got no place here. You have no power here. Zip it. Zip it. Jesus tells us the only thing that we need, listen, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to stand on the word of God. I have an accuser, I have an adversary, but it tells me right here that I have an advocate. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and he makes intercession for me. Is God not more powerful? If God's for me, then not even the devil himself can stand against me. Not even his accusations and his charges and his condemnation can do anything to me. Who is it who condemns? It's not Jesus. He identifies the voice of condemnation and he says, it's not Jesus because he, he intercedes for us and he cannot intercede and condemn at the same time. There's a guy named Kenneth Wiest who's super smart. He says, even he cannot do both. 
accuse and justify, speaking of Jesus, at the same time, and since our justification resides in a person, the Lord Jesus, our righteousness in whom we stand as uncondemned and unchangeable as the Son himself, it is impossible after being justified what we be again accused and brought under condemnation. Not by him. Jesus isn't the one who condemns. It's the devil himself. And Jesus, or James actually, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, can bitter and fresh water come from the same fountain? Listen, if Jesus is blessing us, then, then cursing can't come from his mouth either. And since he doesn't condemn me, no one else can. The devil can try, but I run to the one who justifies. Condemnation is an impossibility on the part of God to those who are his. Ironside, he says, there is no answer possible. Every voice is silenced. When he asks that question, who is it who condemns? There is no answer possible. Every voice is silenced. Every accusation is hushed. Our standing in Christ is complete and our justification unchangeable. And this is something I need to grow in today is the assurance that I have in Jesus. Assurance in him that my sin really is forgiven today. That my sin past, present, and the, the way that I will mess up in the future, Jesus died for those sins. I'm his. You may be thinking, man, what if I mess up tomorrow? What if I really blow it tomorrow? Because I've blown it, but what if I really blow it? What if I just like, man, what if I blow it? Listen, God's taking care of my past. He's about to take care of my future here in these verses. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's the last, or Series of questions he asked. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Listen, the Apostle Paul's not speaking from like some lofty mansion and saying, shall tribulation? Oh, Jeeves, bring me my plate. He's not saying that from like this place of never experiencing this. The Apostle Paul experienced every single one of these things and what awaited him was the sword. That was the last thing. Every single one of those, man, he had experienced to the full extent. He says, I've been there, and listen, God never stopped loving me there. uh, Tribulation means stress or distress. It means to be squeezed or hemmed in by a circumstance. Persecution or famine, nakedness, meaning so poor that you can't afford to, to even clothe yourself. What happens is a lot of times when these things take place, we begin to question, God, are you really for me? Or have you dropped the ball or forgotten me? This is something that David struggled with. Constantly when he's anointed as king. He's said to be the next ruler of Israel. He's a righteous man. And suddenly he's fleeing for his life from this madman named Saul. Who's chasing him all over the countryside. Trying to kill him. And he's going, God, now maybe I didn't hear you clearly. But I thought you said I was going to be the next king. Was that a mistake? You read in the Psalms, it says, God, vindicate me, rescue me. Have you forgotten me? Do you not see me? Something that David struggled with was, God, if, if what you said is true, then why is this all happening? Have you stopped loving me? And what was happening in those times in David's life is that God was destroying Saul that was in David. He was ridding David of everything that was like Saul. And as David was being groomed and prepped to be king, 
He saw that towards, as he became king, he saw that the Saul that was within him, the flesh was being pulled away and burned up by trial and difficulty. Those times in the desert, those times in the caves, he says, God never stopped loving me. What God was doing is refining me. He was making me to be like him so that I can rule and reign as king in a, in a proper way. He says in verse 36, as it is written, for our sake we are killed, all, or for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 37, he says, listen, he quotes Psalm 44, and it was something that the nation of Israel had felt. All their enemies had defeated them. They thought they're going to be wiped out. They're thinking God's not going to come through. What are we going to do here? And he quotes that verse, and he says, listen, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ. It means that we're super, hyper conquerors. It means to gain surpassing victory. This guy named Myers, he says, it's a holy arrogance of victory in the might of Christ. Ironside, he says, no experience, however hard or difficult, can do it. Even though exposed as sheep to the slaughter, yet death but ushers us into the presence of the Lord. In all circumstances, we more than conquer, we triumph in Christ. Paul says, even if I'm killed, I triumph in God. We already have victory. We We have already won today. In verse 38, he says, I am persuaded For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In these verses, Paul says here, I am persuaded, which means that I have come to a conviction, not a position. I have come through the process of persuasion to a settled conclusion. I am fully convinced, Paul says. Are you fully convinced of Christ's love for you? If you're not, look to the cross and be convinced. If you're not convinced of God's love for you, undying, never wavering love for you, look to the cross today because listen, be convinced he did not withhold his own son from you. He loves you with an everlasting love. His love has never changed. It does not fluctuate with performance. It is constant. It is steady. He has loved you. He loves you. And he will always love you. That doesn't change. Paul says here, no angel, nor fallen angel, or principality, no ruling demonic power, nothing in this present world, or the things in the future that scare me, those things can't separate me, and also he throws in, no created thing, that means you, you created thing, even us, no matter how self-destructive we might be, you cannot and will not be able to separate yourself from the love of God. And I'm not saying here today that no matter what you do, listen, it doesn't matter, we're all going to get to heaven. If you're sitting in here today and you're going about a lifestyle of sin, and you're just okay with it, you're caught up in alcohol, you're caught up in drugs, you're caught up in sex, and that's the life that you're living, and you're like, I go to church, it's cool. Listen, you better check yourself. Because I'm sorry, when you're born again by the Spirit of God, things don't just stay the same. We've been given the power to live a different kind of life. I'm not saying here and condoning sin, hey, just keep living the way you're living. What I'm saying here today 
is that God loves you and he calls you to a life. Paul begs, he says, I beseech you, I beg of you. Can you imagine if he came in here today and grabbed you all limp? You imagine how many beatings that guy took just limping and like, man, this looks painful every time he takes a step. And he grabs you by the arm, he looks you in the eye and he says, I beg you, I beg you. Present your body a living sacrifice. Give your life to Jesus because there's nothing greater that you can do. There's no life that is more blessed than a life that is dedicated to the Lord. There's not a life where you experience the love of God than a life that is dedicated to Jesus and just loving him. Paul says here there's nothing in the world that can separate us from his love. It's not a conditional promise. If we live right, no, no matter what, nothing can separate me from God's love. It's never going to happen. No matter where you are today in your walk with Jesus or what you've been into, listen, I want you to know God loves you and he is for you. Experience the grace of God today. Confess that sin that you've been carrying around and dealing with and hiding. Give it to Jesus that you might receive from him restoration and peace. Restoration and peace. Because what you're feeling right now is not peace. I mean, you're in turmoil. Peace is found with Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. He is ever for you. He is ever for you. There's a man named Joseph Denham Smith. He was an Irish preacher in the 1800s, and he wrote this. He says, no condemnation, blessed is the word. No separation, forever with the Lord. And by his blood he bought us, cleansed our every stain, with rapture now we'll praise him, the lamb for sinners slain. The response to this today, the response to the wonders of the gospel, man, theology breeds doxology. Praise. If you've been saved today, man, you know Jesus, and you've heard about how much God loves you, man, let's spend this time as we close just telling him how much we love him offering up that sacrifice of praise and worship. Man, tell him. Tell him how much you love him with your hands raised, with your eyes closed, with like no one else is here, and you sing to the top of your lungs of the goodness of God in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, we pray today that if anyone is struggling in this area, of assurance, whether or not you're for them. God, would they be reminded today that you love them with an everlasting love. Jesus, you're calling them to grace. You're calling them to a life that is characterized by forgiveness and grace today. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. And Jesus, we give you our all. In your name we pray. Amen.